0: Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth. My name is Saurabh Sharma, the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by
1: Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment.
0: And we have got a fantastic episode for you guys today. We had on David Azarad, who's just one of the most fantastic... Uh, you know, thinkers and commentators out there. Uh, Before we get to his bio, though, wanted to talk about a few things on AmericanMoment.org. If you haven't checked it out yet, we highly recommend you do. Please follow us on social media at AmMoment.org so that stuff from our website is regularly trickling across your feed. We put in a lot of hard work to make that site as great as we could. On there, you'll find information about Summit, a conference on American statecraft that we are working on every day, and we hope to have more precise details for you soon so that you can and sign up for the actual physical event in the fall uh, that we're going to have. It's going to be one of the first big conferences uh, since President Trump left office that's going to be all about what the future of of this agenda that supports strong families, a sovereign nation, prosperity for all needs to hold. Nick, you've been doing a lot of planning. Is there anything you can tease
1: for us? It's going to be really cool, and you're not going to want to miss it.
0: (laughs) That's all with, I can give with, away. With
1: that extremely specific detail,
0: uh, I want to talk a little bit about the guest that we're going to have on today, David Azarad. Uh, David is the assistant professor and research fellow at Hillsdale College's Van Andel Graduate School of Government in D.C. He has been teaching, I believe now, for four semesters where he regularly red and blackpills all of his students, is my understanding. Honestly, I hope I can end up taking a class from David one day because he is he is professorial in the most fun way imaginable, just dispensing woke teachings left and right. Uh, Before he was at Hillsdale, David was the director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation. And honestly, I mean, I've talked to people who've gone through Heritage Foundation's programming over the years. And without fail, the two bright spots for them are a previous guest on American Moments, Moment of Truth, Arthur Millick and david azarad and uh you know uh, the, the 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 lady uh, participants at the heritage foundations programs tend to say he's pretty easy on the eyes as well so make sure you check out this <laughs> one on video um he, david's gonna kill me for saying that but uh before that he he taught at american university and the university of dallas he is a a a french
1: african canadian by ethnicity i think i think the proper term is french afro canadian
0: yeah whatever <laughs> um and uh, he received his BA from Concordia University, his MA from Carleton University, and his PhD in politics from the University of Dallas. We, we had a wide-ranging discussion about everything from the failures of conservatism to some of the ways the right can be entrepreneurial and actually wielding power, the reason to not support reparations, uh, and some of his own background and, and, and how he got involved doing the work he does now. It was a lot of fun. Um, Nick, what did you think of the episode?
1: I thought it was great. I uh, really enjoyed talking with David. I, I I finally feel like I've met someone who's as angry as I am about <laughs> everything. Um, so today's episode was really great. Uh, one of the things that I kept thinking through this entire time is that like, you know, David's not on Twitter. And I was just sitting here thinking, would I be this smart if I wasn't on Twitter? <laughs> like if I just deleted my account, would I know this much and yeah. be like, still as mad yeah. um but no if it, 100
0: of you rate five stars we will delete nick's twitter account <laughs> <laughs> um and uh don't hold us to that but i'll try to so so please make sure to do that and uh yeah i mean nick i, I think you should consider maybe getting off the bird app uh, you tweet more than i do absolutely I, um but i don't i i i don't read as many books as you do so that's there true. you go Very um, good point and so where else am I going to learn things? But uh, anyway, we're, we're going to go into the episode now with Professor David Azarad. We hope you guys enjoy. Uh, now over to David. Thanks for coming on the podcast, David. Thanks for having me. We always like to start with how people got to the point where they're doing the things they are now. And you have a windy tale, to say the least. Explain how you got to the point where you're teaching in D.C. and, you know, pissing off liberals and doing all the things you do now.
2: There was no plan whatsoever to any of this. <laughs> uh, I was born and raised in Montreal to a, uh, parents who are immigrants. My mom is from France, from northwestern France and Brittany. My father is a Sephardic Jew from Morocco, and they left Morocco and went to Israel, and then he came to Canada. I grew up with Moroccan Jews and there's basically, uh, well, the only profession you get pushed into is doctor. (laughs) The auxiliary is dentist. And then there's several empty rungs. And then you get, then it gets fuzzy. There's kind of lawyer maybe, but it doesn't enjoy the same prestige as in America. Engineer and business. Yeah. And then beyond that, I mean, I'd never heard the word liberal education. I mean, you know, the, the model we grew up with, I think a lot of immigrants had that, is you go to college to get a job. And so liberal education is, will get you on welfare. <laughs> um, I, I had a very, very hard time deciding what I want to do in college because I was interested in books, but everyone was telling me, you're gonna end up unemployed. So I started off in the hard sciences. Uh, I started at McGill in physics and mathematics. It wasn't for me. I transferred to Concordia. I did journalism thinking you can write, but you'll get a job. I soon realized that journalism, you need to write about something. So I added poli-sci as a second major. And then uh, my last year of college at Concordia, I was looking through the catalog, and I saw that there was a class offered on Plato. And I thought, oh, I've heard of him. Let me try this out. So the class was on Monday evenings with an Austrian professor named Horst Hutter with a thick German accent. I sit down in the class, I had no idea what's going on. I go see the chair of the department. I said, I need to drop this class. I don't understand what's going on. I wanna take this other class. She said, look, I can't do this right now. Tough it out, see if it works for you. And in a sense, the rest is history because uh, I got the bug for political philosophy. I got the bug for great books. It took me a while, You know, this was two plus one plus three. It was six years of post-secondary education Until I finally took a real class where it was so interesting, I wasn't even taking notes. I then went to do uh, a master's in political philosophy in Ottawa, the capital of Canada. So we specify that for our American listeners here. That's, that, uh, that's
0: right. It's not Canada City. <laughs> no, it is. We, we had we had a, a pre tape conversation about this where you asked me and, and I had no idea. Yes.
1: <laughs> hey, Saurabh, remind me, what does PEI stand for? I have no idea. It's all ridiculous. <laughs> it's
0: Canadian nonsense. Like, in, in, anyway, you're saying. if I were an
1: American, I also wouldn't care about Canada. I mean,
2: Nick is the odd one here at the table who's somehow interested in Canadian history. Yeah, yeah. So I finished my master's and then I decided, look, I don't. I wanted to do a PhD, but I thought um, I don't want to wake up one day, be 30 and have been in school my whole life. I wanted to go abroad and, and have a bit of the spirit of adventure. So I ended up using my journalism degree. Uh, I got a job with the Times of London. Uh, I was a foreign correspondent in Malaysia, in Kuala Lumpur, and I spent about a year there. It was extraordinary. I mean, I was 25 years old and living with my parents my whole life, been in school and just waiting tables and writing for local newspapers. And uh, here I was with a chauffeur living in a five-star hotel, uh, (laughs) interviewing everyone from the prime minister on down. Um, And then I I, uh, applied to grad school in the US. I landed at the University of Dallas, which is a uh, small liberal arts Catholic university uh, in Dallas that has uh, not the most prestigious school, but excellent academics. And there I went to study only political philosophy. I, I had no real interest in America. I wanted to do Greek and Plato. And then uh, I, again, once again, stumbled into a class on the American founding because Tom West was teaching it. Tom West was my main, one of my main professors there. I ended up writing my dissertation under him. And I became very interested in American politics. And that proved to be fortuitous because that ended up being my career. When I left Dallas, I came to D.C. I got a first job doing higher ed reform for a couple of years. And then I spent nine years at the Heritage Foundation, um, first as assistant director and then director of a center that studied American political thought. Uh, and I left a year ago to go teach at Hillsdale here in the D.C. campus where I teach political, philo- political philosophy and American political thought. Uh, I came to the U.S. So 16 years ago, I was not really a conservative. I was probably on the way to starting to realize that the liberalism that I soaked up growing up in Quebec, which is about as monoparty, monolithic a place there is, there was something wrong with it. With the
0: exception of secessionists, I guess.
2: Well, even, yeah, I mean, um, well, we can get into Quebec secession (laughs) (laughs) later. I, I was in. When I did my master's, I met some conservative students. I started reading The Weekly Standard. Oh, wow. Uh, out, out of all <laughs> A <things>. Storied
1: publications. <laughs> Mark Stein
2: got on my horizon, and I started realizing that there was another way of thinking. But it was really moving to the US. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, is discovering the American intellectual conservative tradition, you know, reading Tom Sowell, reading Bill Buckley, reading Pat Buchanan. Uh, and then I should say, you know, the other big thing is just actually meeting conservative Americans. Uh, you know, to become a conservative, you need to first of all be won over by the ideas, but you also need to feel comfortable with the people. And if you grew up in a big city and you're cosmopolitan, <clears throat> you know, you tend to think that the people who are conservatives are rubes who cling to their guns and their religion. And you haven't really met any. And I met a bunch of them and I thought they were fantastic. You know, yeah. I thought I-, I love, they're patriotic, they're welcoming. Uh, the, the, firearms took me a while to get used to. I mean, it's, hmm. you need to, you don't realize how strange it is to meet people who own guns. If you grew up in Montreal, I mean, it, it you know, it's like saying people who believe that the earth is flat, <laughs> but once you overcome that shock, you realize how much, you know, uh, sense it makes and how salutary it is for the Republic. So it took a while, but I, I uh, you know, ended up becoming a conservative uh, along the way. So I would say, look, I don't know if this answer makes much sense, but uh, none of this was planned. Uh, I, I will say this. I got to where I am by, in a certain sense, refusing to go with the flow. I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be an engineer. Everyone was telling me, well, you're not just going to read these old books and study yeah. Greek. And uh, it doesn't always work out. So I'm not going to tell the young kids, you know, just follow your heart all the time. <laughs> you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. But I, I'll I'll give myself credit for this one thing, that I didn't want to get pushed into doing something I didn't want to do. And I kind of, you know, went out on a limb. Let me try out this, do a PhD in political philosophy, having no real idea of how things would work out. And they ended up working out. And I, I must say working out very well because Hillsdale is, I mean, Hillsdale is paradise. It's a... It's, uh, An intellectually and morally serious university in America in the 21st century that is uh, well funded and well managed. I mean, good students, good colleagues. I don't know that it gets any better than that.
1: So it's crazy to me when I found out how small of a student body Hillsdale actually has because they're like everywhere here in DC. Like, I feel like almost, right? Like, almost every other person you meet is like, oh, yeah, you know, I go to Hillsdale or I went to Hillsdale. It's a, you know, it's a very uh, prestigious school, I guess here in here yeah, in I mean, DC. I, I, the administration
2: and Larry Arn I think gets a lot of credit for that. Has done a fantastic job of branding the school uh, on the right and in DC in particular. And look, the other thing is that the 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 students shine. I remember when I was at Heritage, and I, I, one of the jobs I had was I handled the educational programings for the interns. And one of my running jokes was I would ask a question like, who here has read Tocqueville? And I would always add the qualifier, except for the Hillsdale students. <laughs> <laughs> so the school is well regarded, but, um, you know, I, I'm constantly impressed by the quality of the students because the, the, it's, it's a rigorous school. You know, the admissions rate is going to, don't quote me on this, although I'm saying it, <laughs> uh, I think it's going to be down in the 20s this year, you know, which makes it a, a selective college. So we get good students. And once they're there, unlike American universities that are just, you know, diploma mills, basically, once mm-hmm. you get in, no one really cares. That I mean, to me, I find it mind boggling that these elite institutions that, first of all, charge the highest tuition of any institutions in the world will give diplomas to people who, without a guarantee that they speak a foreign language, that they know much about anything. I mean, it is kind of astounding to meet graduates from elite universities who've never read Homer, um, who've never heard of Flaubert, who've never read Nietzsche. Who've who, I mean, to me, the foreign language one is another staggering thing. How is it possible that you go through 16 years of education, 16, and you can't speak a foreign language? What have they been doing with you?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, can you imagine 100 years back if you in America or in any place, you said this person has been studying for 16 years and he doesn't speak a foreign language. It's surreal. Yeah. Because most of schooling is kind of, you know, babysitting and credentialing and having fun, but there's no real emphasis on learning and on hard learning.
1: Yeah, I've mentioned this book a couple of times on the podcast already. So I apologize for plugging it again, but I don't know if you've read uh, First Principles uh, yet. I've... I'm forgetting by the, the economist, it, uh, by yes, Thomas Ricks. Uh, no. and, and, and so I should loan you my copy. Um, mm-hmm. because he basically goes through, uh, how the founders were influenced by Greek and Roman thought and, um, you know, how it, uh, like as young people, like in their teens, you know, how it formed their, uh, you know, political philosophy as they, um, as they, you know, I guess founded this country and it, and it goes through, you know, like, yeah, you know, this founder, um, it didn't go to college. And like by the time he was 18, he spoke like six languages because he just like read all the time, you know, and it's so like
2: I, I once looked this up because at Heritage, they would always make fun of me for being a Frenchie, which is, you know,
1: f- fair enough. Eminently I, reasonable. Yes, of course it's
2: reasonable. <laughs> I looked up the number of the, ma- the big six founders. How many knew French? Now I'm not remembering now. This is this is. Uh, it's been a long time. I only there was only one of them who didn't know French. I, I can't remember which one. But five of the big six, you know, Madison, Hamilton, Jefferson, Washington, Adams, and Franklin mm-hmm. knew French. And then you know you look into the the expo- I mean, if you go to the Library of Congress here, they uh, have you can see part of Jefferson's uh, library that he sold to the Library of Congress after there was a fire and they lost their collection. You just look at the breadth and scope of the learning of that man, uh, the, the the extent of his interest. Of course, he hadn't read all these books. No one has read every book in their library, but it shows mm-hmm. you what he was interested in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've been to see that yet, Sir Rob, but you, you totally should. It's great. I should.
0: And uh, yeah, I mean, it just goes to the kind of overall bankruptcy of, of modern American credentialing institutions, right, is that they're not really interested in learning for learning's sake. And look, I mean, to a certain degree, you can understand- you know, eventually institutions become heuristics for certain things. It's it's that, oh, it is likely to be the case that if someone goes to this place and, and has this education that they know these things, but it's not 100%. But at this point, I mean, you, it is genuinely the case that you may be better off assuming that someone who goes to one of these these modern, you know, clerisy generating institutions knows very little, in fact. Um, you know, I, the, the example that I keep coming back to is uh, that kid, uh, you know, Ziad Ahmed. Uh, a couple of years ago, he he made uh, news because he got into Stanford by writing "Black Lives Matter" a hundred times, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he ended up matriculating at Yale. And he's just as stupid as he was when he got in. And is, <laughs> you find out his dad's like a top quant at Citibank, and they you know thrown a lot of money. And it's just like, okay, this is this is obviously morally and substantively bankrupt as far as the system yeah. of higher education goes, and it's why at American moment we we, we always say. You know, the right should not give up, you know, you know what, about uh, college degrees, with one exception, which is that, you know, Hillsdale <laughs> actually teaches conservative governance to a certain degree. So perhaps well, that's. Well, look, the H- H- Hillsdale
2: is not the only one mm-hmm. there. I mean, the University of Dallas, I think, is, is a serious school. And then at most universities, you can find a handful of professors, sometimes a whole department uh, that is quite solid. Boston College, for example, has, I think, the premier political theory department in the country. So there are little pockets here and there, but yeah, the, the basic MO is that the people running the universities don't really care about education. They care about rankings, fundraising, new buildings, football, uh, and woke indoctrination. Uh, but the, 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 the idea that these universities are custodians that have the Western heritage that they need to transmit. These are reactionary positions at almost all universities today.
1: Yeah. So I, Moving to the the woke indoctrination piece, you know, you you hear members of Congress talk about this a lot. You hear, you know, a lot of people on Twitter talking about it. Um, Break it down for us. Like what what's going on at the universities? Who's funding it and and, and what's the outcome? And then hopefully how do we fix it? I know that's a lot to cover, (laughs) but
2: yeah, that well, who's funding it? The public universities is we are. I mean, mm. that 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 is the first level of insanity is, I mean, forget what's going on in the really blue states. You know, the, forget the UC system for one moment. Uh, look at the really red states where you have Republicans controlling both houses and the legislature. Why are they funding basically the indoctrination centers and credentialing centers for the enemy? The, the source of the cancer and of the rot in America today is coming out of the elite universities And why do they fund them? Well, it's a variety of reasons. One is a lot of them went there and then they like the football. So the sports are a big part of the corruption. Mm -hmm. Another is they're afraid of them. You know, look, who serves in a state legislature in Idaho? They're decent people, but they're probably intellectually intimidated by the president of the university or the head of the sociology department. Now, that's where you would hope that conservatives would come into play and help them out. But generally speaking, you look at the conservative ground game in the states, the focus is tax cuts, school choice, and occupational licensing reform, right? deregulating African hair braiding. There's very little energy that is being put into going after the universities. So one bright spot is, I mentioned uh, Idaho because um, they're going after BSU over the woke funding. They managed to cut a few million dollars this first time around. <clears throat> the legislators are developing a spine. Uh, and I am I think it's interesting what will happen. The state think tank has been involved. One of the professors who's a friend of mine, Scott Yaner has been involved. I would look at what's happening to in, in Idaho as a model for what other states can do, red states, to start cutting off funding to the universities. You know, the broader question of what ought to be done is uh, uh, let's at least begin by recognizing that the universities have been a problem for Basically, over a century. I mean, the progressive revolution in America started in the universities. At the very least, you know, Buckley's first book was called Gone Man at Yale, published in the early 50s. So conservatives have been complaining about the universities for at least 70 years. Buckley wrote Gone Man at Yale, Bloom wrote The Closing of the American Mind, Roger Kimball wrote Tenured Radicals. I mean, this is an old thing. And conservatives have tried a bunch of things like we start chapters of student groups, we bring in guest lecturers, we fund scholarships the universities have only gotten worse. So I'm in a pretty radical mood these days when it comes to the universities. <laughs> I, I, metaphorically, I want to say burn them all down. I mean, they, they <clears throat> at the very least go hard after the humanities that are completely corrupt. Um, so I would go after the funds at the public universities and then the private ones. You know, uh, one, if you have political power, I would look at uh, taxing the endowments Um, And then more generally, you know, I think they ought to be constantly humiliated and mocked. You know, this is something that Trump at his best did. He didn't do it to the universities. He was too in love with the Warren degree that he had. Mm. But our elites are not used to being mocked and they are utterly humorless themselves. And there's great power in just laughing in their faces and saying you call this a diploma, you call this a university, <laughs> you gotta be kidding me! You're charlatans, you're fools. So I, I don't have a you know a ten point plan to fix the universities with policies, but I, I I think we need to just mock them and see them for what they are, and no longer be enamored with you know dropping the H bomb. He went to Harvard, so what? He went to Harvard. You know he may have gone into Harvard because he's, he's smart. But he may have gone into Harvard because his parents got in or because his uncle gave money or because he plays some sport or because he's got some sexual orientation or some skin color or because someone wrote a college essay for him saying how oppressed he was. There's no guarantee that he got in by merit. And I guarantee once he was in, he coasted through. Because once you're into these schools, everyone gets an A. Yeah. I think a few years ago I read a study, that a report, 87% of kids were graduating from Harvard with honors. So why are we so impressed by these degrees? I would say, you know, the first thing is we need an attitude adjustment on the right. Look, Sorab, you've been great about this, and you know, and and you take it to the next level of <laughs> screw it, you shouldn't even go to college. Absolutely not, and, and and stop making a college degree a prerequisite to be, you know, a secretary or an intern in D.C.
0: Yeah, well, it's you know, there, there's so much there. I mean, I went to the University of Texas at Austin, which is one of the you know, ostensibly one of the most elite schools in the South, period. Uh, It has all of the institutional funding to be truly great. It attracts great professors. And the Republican legislature has been utterly effete and actually reigning in um, not only the academic corruption that has happened at the university, but also the straight up corruption, corruption. You know, uh, wealthy, uh, you know, state legislators getting their kid in and, and and things like that. In fact, there was one man at the time uh, a, a few years ago named Wallace Hall who tried to do some reforms uh, on on the board of regents, and he got impeached by the state legislature because, again, these people they're very used to uh, the 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 university lobbyists giving them box seats at all the games, and yep. and and you know, in some in some ways. A lot of state legislators tend to have a degree from the school that they uh, go to. And so whatever will increase its prestige nationally is something that they are very intent on protecting. And it's it is a fundamentally insecure mindset. And and it's it's for the same reason that the H-bomb is so important. I mean, you come to this town and if you have a Harvard or Yale degree, you would expect that you would get the red carpet rolled out for you, in liberal institutions. And you do. You also get the red carpet rolled out for you in conservative ones. Why? Um, look. Occasionally, you get a good conservative that comes out of these places, but more often than not, uh, you know, in a country of 330 million people or however many it is, um, there's lots of smart people. So these universities have their pick and they can pick uh, what kinds of people end up being a part of them. And for a university to make a decision to affirmatively choose someone, chances are that they have tokenized their oppression very well or that they're very good at playing a particular game. Um, it's just not a stand in for any any merit that's worth the word merit at this point in time. And and you mentioned how we've been talking about this for 70 years, uh, that conservatives have been railing against colleges. And to me, there are few greater evidences as to conservatism's failures than what has happened with colleges, because we have complained, we've spent money, uh, and we have whined, um, and and nothing has changed. Um I quote a piece that you wrote a few uh, months ago called uh, American conservatism is fiddling while Rome burns uh, every day,
1: like every single day. And he quotes from it often, like to be clear, (laughs) like he'll say something and I'm like, you didn't come up with that. That was David. (laughs) Uh, Can you
0: explain what your your indictment, your broadside against the American conservative movement is uh, and how, you know, potentially we could stop losing?
2: Yeah. um, Look, I don't claim, you know, any originality in in this critique. You know, you find it really in the work of the paleos already who are, you know, if uh, a neocon is a liberal who's been mugged by uh, reality, uh, a paleo tends to be a conservative who's been mugged by conservatism (laughs) uh, is one way that I would define it. So a lot of that is already there. And it's it's basically uh, a twofold critique. One is that conservatism has completely failed to stop the left as it has marched through the institutions and progressively fundamentally transformed the United States of America. That on issue after issue, you know, with the two big exceptions of one is a lowering of the marginal tax rate, which did spur a massive economic growth. Although it's important to remember that the promise of Reaganism that is that we would starve the beast turns out that the beast can borrow and the beast has gone fatter and fatter. So, uh, you know, even tax cuts come with a bit of a because tax cuts basically at this point means that Americans are not paying for the government they're getting. Yeah. Uh, And second was the victory in the Cold War, which I won't discount. But if you look at the domestic agenda, you know, from the New Deal onwards, conservatism has been yelling stop uh, and getting trampled all over as issue after issue we lose on and the country moves more and more to the left. And then the other criticism is that as this happens, conservatism itself is dragged to the left and ends up becoming, you know, a form of watered down liberalism or uh, liberalism 1.0 while, you know, the left becomes the 2.0 version or defending positions from 20 years ago. So, you know, you get... I think NR a few years ago ran uh, like the conservative case for gay marriage, this type of thing. So as we move, you know, or or look at how MLK is now a conservative hero, uh, because the left has gone far to the left of MLK with the wokeness. So we now defend MLK. So the, the right used to oppose the Civil Rights Act. You know, Barry Goldwater, who did not believe in discrimination, just saw that the 1964 Civil Rights Act would uh, obliterate the freedom of association in America, create a behemoth and was not constitutional. He opposed it on that grounds. He was not a racist. Uh, That battle was lost. And so the left moved on to affirmative action and other things. And now the right is now defending. Uh, Look, and I've done that too. I mean, part of it is, I mean, what are you going to do? Just keep on losing issue after issue. Now this gets into, well, what are you going to do? I would say, can we at least reckon and be honest with this? And this is where, you know, it's one thing to lose. I mean, the forces you're up against are enormous. But can we at least stop lying to ourselves with these stories of the Reagan revolution, the conservative revolution, the Republican revolution? The right talks about revolution so much and these revolutions are laughable. You want to see a revolution. Look at the sexual revolution. Look at feminism. These are revolutions. Ours are not revolutions. They're temporarily blimps on the radar that don't fundamentally alter things. But this is where the vested interests come in. I mean, Conservatism Inc. cannot admit that it spends hundreds of millions of dollars a year fighting the left and that it has so little to show by way of results because it has a vested interest in preserving itself and preserving its sinecures, its magazines, its institutions, its think tanks. And so it needs to cook up this mythology of, you know, we're fighting and we're winning. And sometimes we have a setback. Um, And the people I would ultimately blame at the end of the day are the donors. I mean, one thing I've realized over the years is that the donors are uh, of the conservative movement tend to be much farther right than the institutions they support. And yet, they never really look under the hood. They never really ask basic questions. Um, And, you know, they keep on donating to institutions that are not being effective. So the one thing I want to make clear is, you know, I'm not the arrogant kid who's here saying, well, I would have, you know, I know how to fix everything and you could. I mean, the forces of the left are enormous. I mean, they run and control the whole country. But let's at least have some honesty that what we're doing is not working. And, and what you, you saw with the threat of Trump and the rise of the new right, the populism and the nationalism, some people on the right said, OK, we need to reground ourselves in the realities of the 21st century and update our shtick. For the most part, though, the rest are just burying their heads in the sand and, you know, talking about Reagan and tax cuts.
0: I mean, at a certain level, it's understandable, right? Like if someone looks back on their 40 year career <clears throat> and sees only failure. I mean, it's very hard to live with yourself and look in the mirror and put on a smile. So you'll, you'll tell yourself a story about how it's human nature to win. Um, and that's why, you know, the language we like to use is that a lot of these people just need to be politely retired. Um, because let me put it to the two of you. I mean, say this is one big
2: failure 40 years from now, what you're doing. Uh, and you've not only been doing it for 40 years, you also have a comfortable life that derives onto, I mean, you may, Even if you wanted to change your mind, you got pretty strong incentives not to do so. So it doesn't even necessarily come from a place of malice. And, and you know, this term grift gets thrown around a bit too lightly in this town. And a lot of it is just human nature. I mean, look, you, you two are young. Wait a little bit. See how many people you know fundamentally change their minds about things past the age of 30. You know, that's why education is so important and why adult education
0: is is nonsense. You you don't you don't change. You got to get them when they're young. Yeah. It's why we're interested in forming people's first worldview around this more populist and nationalist mindset, because if someone, you know, grows up in Washington, D.C., a a devotee of the dead consensus at a certain point. Yeah. Maybe they'll wake up one day when they're 55 and and suddenly realize what time it is. Chances are they won't. And Um, even if they realize what
2: time it is, where are they going to go work? I mean, the Heritage Foundation employs more people and has a larger budget than the entirety of the institutions of the new right combined and define the new right as broadly as you want. You know, so people gotta earn a living, and if you've become a professional conservative, yeah, you may realize, you know, on foreign policy, we need to scale it back. But where are you gonna get a job in the foreign policy community in D.C. if you're not about, you know, women's rights in Afghanistan and transgenderism and promoting
0: transgenderism in Somalia? Who's gonna hire you? Yeah, uh, you know, we have to we have to teach feminism at gunpoint to Pashtun tribes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's, that's that's that is the moral imperative of the American security state. Um, but look, what's the you, you described, I think, very succinctly how conservatism fails and, and why the failure endures. I guess at the at the ideological and at the first principles level, what are the shortcomings of American conservatism as presently constructed that make it lose? Yeah, I mean, so that that's a big question.
2: Um, um Well, one enormous element is, you know, most of American conservatism is at its core, libertarian in its rhetoric, worldview, and outlook. It tends to understand politics as the private sector and individuals fighting the government for liberty and that the government is evil uh, and the root of all evils almost and that uh, if it's happening in civil society or in the private sector, it's good. Uh, And then they carve out exceptions here and there. But even I found the so-called social conservatives tend to default to libertarian rhetoric very often. So there's a tendency, you know, part of it is just, you know, the way that conservatism took shape. You know, it's, it's Reagan's rhetoric, it's um, Buckley's rhetoric. Look, conservatism came into being to fight uh, communism in large part, which is about as statist and collectivist as you can get. Um, and then also, you know, look, the New deal, in its we got a scaled back version, but the main thrust of it was you know, central planning. So I understand why conservatism developed that way, but it really would need to outgrow that. and I think one way i I, I explain it to people is, The rhetoric doesn't do justice to the way that 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 American conservatives live. I would always tell them Americans are Tocquevillians in their practices, but then they speak like Randians when it comes to politics. So one thing I would do is, first of all, push out of the right, the libertarians. I, I don't think they belong on the right. Let them go do their own things. Uh, we can work with them on particular issues. You should form coalitions, but libertarians are not conservatives. They don't claim to be conservatives. They, they make that very clear. We should stop pretending that they are, allowing them to speak for us on a bunch of issues. For example, you know, one fatal mistake that I think Buckley made and that the whole right has done is libertarians do economics for us. We've wholly farmed it out for them. And whatever they say will be the conservative position. So that you can count on the fingers of one hand, probably the number of conservative political economists you could hire if you wanted an alternative to the free market fundamentalism. So I, I think that, I, you know, it's a free country. Libertarians have things to say. You can learn from them on some issues and you can work with them on some issues, but they don't belong on the right. Uh, and, you know, electorally, it is utter nonsense for them to have such an influence, at most two or 3% of the population are libertarians and they yield such outsized influence within the party and in the conservative intellectual community. So that that I think would be one. The second one would be, you know, the recalibration on foreign policy. I don't like these silly, you know, are you an isolationist or an interventionist? I mean, everyone is fine with interventions. The issue is on behalf of what? And I would say, you know, a rather narrow conception of the national interest. I love Buchanan's definition of the national interest. The national interest is the test is: Are you willing to die for it? I'm not willing to die for women's rights in Afghanistan. So, I, I, I think we need a, a more restrained uh, foreign policy. And then, look, we need a you know borderline jihadist attitude when it comes to the so-called cultural issues.
0: That you know, first of all, I hate that term, cultural issues. Yeah, that there's th- no such thing. There's no such thing as a culture. Uh, Well, there's no such thing as an economic issue. It's all cultural issues. Yeah.
2: And it implies that they're not serious. You know, like grownups in D.C., we do foreign policy and economics. And then old people and Christians, you can play around with the cultural issues. Now, they're not cultural issues. They're first order political issues because they deal with the family, with generations, with children, with education, with the moral conditions under which the next generation of citizens will be raised. So we need to fight these boldly and aggressively and fiercely. You know, if I may quote uh, scripture the, to the son of the uh, missionaries, <laughs> meet them undaunted and they shall have no power to daunt thee. Uh, no more of this timid, well, the way to fix the family is to eliminate marriage penalties in the welfare state. No, that's not going to fix the family. The way to fix the family is to go after feminism hard. Yeah, you need, you're going to need to learn how to talk about it. You're gonna to need to learn to react to the accusation that you're a sexist. And this is, again, a big failure of the right, that the right has not been teaching people how to do that. Why is it that every last you know, member from podunk middle of nowhere in the house knows how to explain why he's pro-life and why cutting taxes is good? There's nothing instinctive about either issue because the right has fortified these positions and said, we're gonna make it a priority that you know how to talk about these issues. Well, why don't we teach them how to talk about the most important issues confronting the country?
1: Well, I think that's the <clears throat> that's the general point of all this is like conservatism just knows how to lose at this point. Like, we don't know how to fight. We don't know how to be aggressive. Uh, I think the answer for a lot of this is like, yes, laughing in their face and saying, like, we will not be a part of whatever you're talking about. And by the way, whatever you're doing deserves to be destroyed. So like, I was going on a rant, uh, in the car earlier about this i'm talking about this whole like mlb situation you know moving the all-star game out of georgia and there are a lot of people who want to say like like yeah you know we should just boycott the mlb we should like not watch professional sports and you know they're just going to do this it's a free country it sucks and i'm like yeah no we should actually like destroy professional sports (laughs) like we we should just crush them like that's that's the answer and i think that that goes that goes with everything that goes from you know uh, businesses that are trying to cancel states or individual people or whatever like they deserve to be destroyed uh corporations that value you know the 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 dollar and in, like international trade over the american family and like the average worker deserve to be destroyed um like anything that that goes against the national interest and in what makes uh like the american i can see Sarab like oh my gosh i'm so no, gonna regret him talking about this <laughs> later
2: um let, let me offer one uh, you know, I, I, I'm for destroying uh, the universities. Um, I, I don't know that I'm for destroying the corporations. At the very least, I would say start by not rewarding your enemies. Yeah. That, that, that should be the basic rule to be part of this new right we're building. You should, first of all, let, 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 let's backtrack one second. Do you understand who the enemies are and who the friends are? That, that has to be number one. I mean, if Mm -hmm. if knowing what time it is means anything, it has to mean, do you actually know who's against you? The big corporations are not your friends. The elite top brass in the military are not your friends. Professional sports are not. I mean, this is the sad part is that if it's an elite institution, if it's a major institution, uh, they're at the very least saying that they hate you and your family and what you believe in. Mm -hmm. And they may actually believe it too. So at the very least... Know who your friends and enemies are. Do not reward your enemies. And then let's talk about how much to punish them. And then the flip side is start
0: rewarding your friends. Yeah, the credibility of the threat the right actually poses to our enemies is utterly non-existent. Um, The very simple heuristic that, that I like to think about when it comes to why have we lost corporate America is because corporate America only faces a legitimate threat from one flank, which is the left put aside ideological capture internal to these corporations, which has definitely happened. Anyone who yells at me about how uh, industrial policy is un-American or whatever can go screw themselves because we do industrial policy in America. We just do it with English majors at Vassar who go on to be HR bureaucrats in the biggest corporations in American life. But, you know, these corporations, they they look at the political landscape and they need to hedge risk. How do they do so? They do whatever the left-wing mob says and then when the right Gets mad at them, they laugh at them. Why? There's never a real credible boycott from the right. Because yeah, when we, because when we take power, we cut their taxes. That's anyway. right. And then, and then at the political level, whereas Democrats will come up with all sorts of esoteric justifications to inflict serious pain and put the screws into corporations that contravail their cultural priorities. The American right kind of rubs its hands. It's like, well, you know, we we support the free market, and you know, maybe you should have a tax cut, and you know, uh, perhaps you know we'll we'll ban the box on your ability to hire you know non criminals. But other than that, that's that's all we have to say to you. It's it's utterly silly, and it's not how any serious political force would operate. So at some level, from a I mean, I, I take a very similar approach with, with American corporations as they do with China. What they're doing makes sense based on the assessment of the opportunities and the risks they have available to them. China didn't maliciously decide to deindustrialize industrialize our nation. They saw a free lunch and they took it. In much the same way, American corporations, they see total risk from the left because they're serious about politics, and they see very little from the right. Yeah, that's why
2: this kind of, oh, are you going to stop doing business with China? I mean, in a sense, it's good to point out, but you think that the hypocrisy is going to lead to them saying, oh, well, hold on one second. We're boycotting Georgia. No, they respond to power. Yeah. And we're a joke. No one's afraid of us. So why should they bother catering to our interests I I want to add one last thing, you know, for the the Catholic uh, listeners uh, to this podcast and others is, you know, a lot of people get antsy with this language of friends and enemies applied to politics. Well, aren't we all Americans? What about the common good? I want to recreate the conditions that will allow us to move beyond the friend enemy language domestically, to recreate the normal conditions for politics where we can focus on the common good. We're not there right now because we've lost our country, because of the long march to the institutions, because we are now a besieged majority uh, facing a a set of fanatic zealots at the realm hellbent on uh, destroying us. And yes, this is it is it is wartime. Um, it, It is not violent wartime, but it is political wartime. And uh, we are in a counter-revolutionary position. And then one day you can hopefully you know, recreate the conditions for sane politics, and then we can have the common good and so on and so forth. But I would say, I'd put it to you this way, the common good right now requires waging political war on the woke left and on the neoliberal elites.
0: Yeah, if the goal is to actually reforge a nation, you can't have disagreements over whether it's a good idea for seven-year-olds to get injected with hormones to make them transgender like that is not that is not a a, an environment where there is disagreement on that is not one that is conducive to any sense of a cohesive polity and we talked about this in our last episode as well uh the only way out is through um and in 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 a lot of ways um this all goes to to sort of what you mentioned earlier about how the best that conservatism seems to be able to marshal is a defense of the status quo ante. You know, what whatever was 10 years ago, whatever the democratic platform 10 years ago was will be the halcyon conservative position today. Um, th- th- it seems like th- there's a whole spectrum of issues where that seems to be the case for the right. Uh, but one that you have uh, made a name for yourself as of late um, being particularly robust on, on saying, no, we should not weaken on is reparations. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about why you do not see reparations as a, you know, potential way to cool the saucer of racial tensions in America, you know, how David Brooks sees it as a way to right historical injustice. Uh, why is it the, the five alarm fire that it should be recognized as?
2: I mean, you don't negotiate with terrorists. Uh, the people who are asking for reparations are not interested in racial reconciliation. They are not interested in healing the wounds of the past. And they're definitely not interested in moving beyond race. They're interested in in perpetual grievances. They're interested in increasing the hate for Americans, for America, and for white people. Um, Their motives and interests are not good. They make this quite clear. I mean, you know, the, the way I put it to people is think of what an absolute disaster it would be for the left, broadly speaking, and the elites for that matter, if America stopped being, quote unquote, racist, it would be a disaster. Because this is, first of all, the basic moral framework that, A, allows them to destroy us because they get to call us racist. And this is how you eliminate people today. You don't call them atheists, adulterers, philanderers, bad people, immoral. You call them racist, and then you're done with them. We have no equivalent accusation to silence our political enemies. Why would they give up that power? Second, it allows them to completely morally launder their privilege, power, wealth, and corporate nature. Jeff Bezos is not the wealthiest man in the world who runs a multi-billion dollar corporation. No, he's someone who cares about racism and women's rights and, and you know, gay rights. So he's a good person. However, the rednecks you know, in Appalachia, they're very bad people because they're racists. So it would be an unmitigated disaster for the American establishment if we moved beyond racism because they make a lot of money off of it and it morally justifies their power. And therefore, you know, I, I wrote this piece for Newsweek, uh, you know, kind of a saying, you know, I'd be open to repra- I think reparations are unjust, first of all. But fine, I'd be willing to sign off on them at this point. What's a few more trillion dollars, right? (laughs) If you could give me one promise that it takes us to the promised land of racial reconciliation and judging people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. But that is not going to happen because they don't want it to happen. So I say we absolutely need to hold the line, not just on reparation, but on all these racial issues. And we need to stop uh, letting ourselves be morally blackmailed uh, with basically this pathological pity that Americans have vis-a-vis African Americans. Uh, No one denies the horrendous way that blacks were treated in the past in America. But this is 2021. I think that we should get to a point where when we hear the claim that America is systemically racist in 2021, we should laugh in people's faces and say that that is utter and complete nonsense. You talk about white privilege. There is black privilege. That's what I see in America today, to get into college, to get hired, to not get criticized, to always f- have collective moral exoneration. No more of this. We can. Everyone has acknowledged what has happened in the past, but this idea that in 2021 it is anti-black racism that is destroying America or holding blacks back is laughable. It's a hard position to maintain in the public square because you'll get called a racist and they come after you.
1: So this is kind of a funny... Just like a funny anecdote from my perspective. So, I'm actually a uh, a quarter Native American. Um, so my granddad. I'll show you pictures after. Um, my granddad. So are is you this, the
2: most depressed one here that this
0: afternoon? Who, who's a moment of truth is a podcast hosted yeah. by two Indians.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, that should be our new outro. That's right. Um, Although my dad was born in
2: Africa, so technically I, I could be oppressed too.
1: Yeah. Well, so okay, so David is... Azrad, African
0: American professor at <laughs> Hillsdale College.
1: So this is the interesting thing, right, is like uh, if you're not watching on video, like my dad's side of the family is uh is Scandinavian, so I am just as white as can be. Um, you know, like I open the refrigerator and get a sunburn from the light inside. <laughs> like it's 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 a problem, but not as swarthy as David. Yeah, exactly. But I can go into meetings with people that that like lead native organizations or um you know uh lead organ like nonprofit organizations that work in the native community and i will get people that call me a person of color like just because i say i'm native and i get this like oh nick you know we don't want to oppress you and i'm like i i'm good like thank <laughs> you it's, it's just a very interesting thing and i i i think the the way that i first kind of started to get radicalized on this cultural stuff is the um the holidays it was it was all the like made up holidays that were not a thing when i was a kid like i'm gonna be honest i i i do not remember women's history month being a thing when i was a kid <laughs> like i don't like I, I i just you know women have a ton of opportunity in this country i think that's great um but just like the amount of money that these like corporations try to make off of like women's history month and like you know, trans appreciation day and like what, like selling all this merchandise with these flags. Like, I don't know. I I'm colorblind. I can't really tell the difference between all of them, but I know there are a bunch of different ones. Um, I, it's just ridiculous. It's, it's insane to me. And I think, you know, that's how you know that it's evil when you have all these like massive corporations making a ton of money and not getting criticized for it either. Like it's, it's totally acceptable. You're, you hit the nail on the head. Like, Jeff Bezos is a good guy because he supports Black Lives Matter. And so, like, that's great. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, his drivers are, like, pissing in water bottles. Like, so that's, you know, fantastic. And,
0: and meanwhile, the right says that Jeff Bezos is a good guy because he gets his two-day shipping. And, and, you know, the blatant consumerism and and corporate solicitude on the right gives, you know, a path to moral virtue from both right and left mm-hmm. that is anything but. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's a truly terrible Status quo. Um, I, I guess as a final question, David, you know, going into the next couple of years, Republicans are out of power, uh, even more so than when they're in power, because <laughs> they tend to not really believe in power. Um, what is what is the introspection that you hope happens on the right as they prepare to govern again in the coming years? And 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 w- w- what's the path that that shouldn't be taken? Yeah,
2: I don't have high. I mean, look, I, I'm I'm not in the business of making electoral predictions. I mean, they may they may well retake the House uh, in 2022. Uh, part of me wants to say, like, who cares? I mean, that's not true, but it's not like they're going to have a transformational agenda, as you put it. It's not like they know how to wield power once they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that here's the lesson uh, the conventional wisdom in DC is becoming, you know, Trump was right about a couple of things, but we need to take the edge off of him and kind of tame him and domesticate him. And so I like the, the, you know, the trade and the immigration stuff and the working class wages, but let's get off rid of all the unpleasantness. Uh, I think that's quite a mistake that uh, Trump's appeal was his combativeness, his irreverence at his best, not always vis-a-vis the elites, how he laughed in their faces. And to give you kind of a, you know, a wonkified version of Trump is not a recipe for winning. And then second, you know, for all the talk that, you know, Trump, we came this close to having the Fourth Reich under Trump and January 6th was a coup d'etat. I would say that at the end of the day, and you know, I'm loath to criticize Trump in public because um, I think one should also give him credit for many things. And it's very easy to pile on on him, but we don't have a lot of time. So I think he ought to be praised for many things. But I'll say this thing about him. He didn't have a killer instinct. He had a rhetorical killer instinct. But once he came to power, he had offered such a solid diagnosis of the corruption in his town. And what was his approach? Let's make deals. He didn't want blood, he didn't want to decapitate the enemy. So if anything, this we should water down and mollify Trump. I think I want more radical, actually. <laughs> so keep the rhetoric, but then learn how to govern. And when you're in power, go after their centers of power. Weaken the left institutionally. Bring them to heel. Um I doubt that many will listen to my advice. Uh, I think we're going to get more of the wonkified, you know, some tweaks on trade but basically keep the, you know, the Paul Ryan playbook slightly updated. Um, but that would be my
0: counterintuitive advice. Well, grow a spine seems to be the general theme of of almost every episode we do because I, you know it's, it's funny we at American Moment we're very interested in some of this intellectual ground shift. We we believe in developing these policies but I find myself more and more when I'm assessing someone who's interested in getting involved, I, I, I look at whether they have courage. And I think that that is, you can go a long way with just courage. Um, and then, you know, if you have courage, the ideological stuff's actually easier because you're not tied down by what someone else says is just or unjust. You're, you're willing to, to make your own assessment of that question. And let so, me end with, uh,
2: I know you like Pat Buchanan too, as I do. Let me end with the Buchanan quote, courage is contagious.
0: That's right. So hopefully there's more courageous people in this town and and hopefully people grow a spine from listening to you. Thank you for coming on the podcast, David. Thanks for having you guys. Before we close out today, we wanted to talk about a couple of the pieces that we have on Amcannon, our aggregator of the best books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, short pieces, Twitter lists, and everything in between that we have on AmericanMoment.org. Uh, In theme with the episode that we just did with David, I wanted to talk about a piece written by a friend of ours named Jordan Arthur Bloom at the American Conservative, uh, and it's called A Restoration Agenda for Congress. And what this piece talks about is some of the ways that an entrepreneurial Republican Party and congressional delegation could really start to rebalance the scales of power uh, in American life by Doing legislation or hearings or or, or things like that. In, in this piece, uh, you know, Jordan walks through a lot of the different ways that these these runaway institutions in American life. If you think about things like the institutional foundations or, or woke capital, can really be brought to heel with a right that is serious about wielding. Power and so I highly recommend that you check it out. Uh, Jordan's done a lot of writing on this topic about making politics great again, as it were, and and really asserting um, some of the 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 power that the uh, the conservative movement could wield if it was interested in doing so. Drawing on historical examples, really, he goes all the way back into the uh, not uncontroversial McCarthy era. In fact, talking about lessons that can be learned from then and in preceding times in American history. So please check it out. It's called A Restoration Agenda for Congress. You can find it on Amcannon and in the show notes. Nick, what did you want to talk about today?
1: Yeah. So we talked a lot on the podcast today about how to wield power. Um, But the piece that I wanted to highlight by uh, Chris Buskirk on his substack, which is titled Vital Signs, um, the piece is titled So you want to win elections, Uh, and basically the uh, the point of this piece is that if conservatives want to win elections again, um, you know we need to implement public policy solutions that support a strong family, a sovereign nation, and prosperity for all. Now he doesn't use those exact words; those are American moment words, but he does. Yeah, registered trademark. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we haven't trademarked it yet, but we don't have to tell anybody that. Um. But the main point of this piece is that the argument that Chris is making is, you know, whoever decides to campaign on an agenda that makes it easier for people to get married, have kids, buy a house, and make sure those kids can be well-educated on one salary will, will win the day. Like th- there would just be like a massive amount of people elected um, that support those policies. So Highly recommend checking that out. Highly recommend you subscribe um, to Chris's uh, substack called Vital Signs. Um, It's very good. I I, I really enjoy it. And you can find it on AmericanMoment.org slash AmCannon.
0: You know, it, it, it's a great it's a great Substack. We love Chris Buskirk. He's he's the editor of at American Greatness, um, and, and and he has a very morally clear way of writing that that I really enjoy. So so I recommend that piece as well. I think it's fantastic. Um, you know, I just I'm thinking if David was here, he'd be saying, you know, well, isn't that sexist to say that they should have a single uh, income <laughs> home? I mean, it's it's utterly ridiculous. The right could could make so much hay in this country if it simply asserted fundamental truths that people like one income households that is their natural preference and and so many other things but but we are so uh, dazed and confused by the influences of woke
1: capitalism that sometimes we forget about the basics uh well it's a historic like it's a historic thing too this 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 idea that you know we had to have a, a two income household is like an extremely recent development like this is something that has come about in the last like 100 years mm-hmm. um not something really that has existed over the the whole arc of like human history and civilization mm-hmm. um just very bizarre that it's become uh I guess kind of the standard, you know, uh, so quickly, you know, in in, in just a hundred years, yeah, uh, that people, you know, must have two income households to survive.
0: And beyond that, it's it's not even necessarily the income question. I think that people across time, you know, men and women have both earned for the household. The difference is the the conception of career as an end in and of itself that it's not that you, you know you earn as much as you need to sustain your family and a large family at that no we, we make an idol out of making partner at a law firm or something mm. silly like that uh j- there's just a lot to be learned from from the classics that David uh, reads and teaches uh, at Hillsdale and, and 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 history more broadly so we've collated a lot of things on this at Amcan and I highly recommend you check it out we put in a lot of work collating all of that. Um, And so please, you know, don't forget to subscribe to American Moment. Uh, Give us any feedback if you would like, um, but only if it's positive. Kidding. If you have any uh, constructive negative feedback, we're open to that as well. Do you want to give out
1: your uh, personal email address so they can send it to you? Absolutely not. Send it to (laughs) Nick,
0: please. Um, Find his email on the website. Kidding. Uh, And then uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you very much moment of truth is an american moment studios production filmed at the conservative partnership center our podcast is produced and edited by jake mercier and jared cummings our intro music is a minor struggle by ryan serenich don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms and you can go to americanmoment.org to learn more